Hello. Welcome to a special edition of True Hoop with me, Gerard Hector, and Henry Abbott. How are you, sir? Doing very well, thank you. And the author of Magic, The Life of Irvin Magic Johnson. You see, it's right here on my screen for those of you watching. The author, Roland Lazenby. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Jared. You doing so all you're, right? You're doing good. on the cover of the New York Times book review. Yes, and I'm. This, uh, I I just was notified today. I couldn't figure out what the hell are they doing putting me on the cover of the New York Times <laughs> book review, and then I found out I'm an editor's choice. And uh, you know, my Jordan book was an editor's choice, so that's good because I've taken a beating over some stuff with this oh. book. Ooh, oh, we're, oh, let's go what, on. You, I was going to say, let, let's just jump right to that. <laughs> well, Publishers Weekly, you know, so that's, uh, you know, they just, I, I don't know if it was some guy that felt that I had, uh, I, I don't know. Anyway, they really just trashed me and said the book was full of padding and stuff. Uh, I do have a lot of racial history because I think context is important. And Dr. Todd at USC said, you know, this is the appropriate depth of focus. But but the the main thing is, it's just a great story. Yeah. The, the story of Magic's people is a big thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think the long view of history, that makes everything he's done, whoa. Yeah, I'm with you there, Roland. And I have to say, look, you couldn't have picked two better subjects for a book in Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. That's going to elicit emotions from people. <laughs> and you know the other one? Well, the other two, uh, Kobe Bryant <laughs> yeah. and Jerry West. Yep. And, uh, you know, those are some major dudes. They are. They and, are. Now. And Phil Jackson, too. I, You know, I did one on him. So those are major dudes. Absolutely. And. I think you're you're so right, uh, Dr. Todd Boyd. Of course, uh, legendary historian at USC, professor. Like he's really an awesome person to talk to about this stuff. Magic for me was my favorite player growing up, so super excited to have you on this podcast. Because who, when they first start watching basketball and seeing that guy play, do not instantly fall in love with the sport of basketball? Blazer right? fans, that's you. Uh, I, I tell you, <laughs> Henry Blazers fans, uh, easy one. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, as everyone knows, a lifelong Blazers fan, so he didn't love Magic. The oh, way. I, he, I, he, I respect torture. the living shit torture. out of him. But there was a play. There was a playoff series that ended with Magic just doing that thing where there's like maybe two and a half seconds left, and he just throws the ball in the air so like nobody has the ball for two and a half seconds. And I was just like, oh, Magic, you're genius! Like, I was like, oh, I wanted that ball so bad. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's, it's yeah. super great. And, you know, Roland, I want to start here because you said history and context is so important. So I want to start with Lansing, uh, of course, where Magic was born uh, and grew up in 1975. Right. And sort of the racial history and strife going on in the con- in the country at large during that time. And then specifically Magic, uh, Magic in, in, in East Lansing. And, you know, what I thought was so fascinating was here is a, a guy, a young man. He's a teenager at that point, sophomore in high school or or. or or so, and his style of play is the antithesis of what the white establishment like when it comes to basketball, right? Showboat was what what he was called, right? Um, but when you watch him play and you understand, you know that is his personality. That's that's his him infusing his infectiousness, which is actually a connector, right? It brings people together. And you remark on a story where after a particularly um, tense time in Lansing, where he was able to organize a walkout at his high school um, 
One, tell me about that story for our, our listeners and um, just how you went about sort of digging, digging deep into that particular uh, story and the importance of including it in this book. Um, y- you know, um, I, the assumption, I, I guess, in uh, white racial perspective is that they're, and we're, we're moving away from this a little bit, but that it had to be some white guy figuring it out for everybody. But in, in seeking to tell the organic story, nothing like that. Um, magic had this figured out. It was now it, it, it's a growing revelation to him as it would be for anyone, but as Dale Beard, his teammate, the uh, man, best man in his wedding, his high school teammate, he explained to me early on, he said, I had to play the way Magic wanted me to play. I could not play my game. And if I did, I wasn't going to get to play. And that basically was the heart of the story. I had this young man who set the agenda in everything. And he had, he, you know, his coaches um, had stirred up things. They, you know, right when Everett High School, this 99% white high school that they were trying to integrate in Lansing, the, the first five black boys uh, on the team, they were junior varsity players. Right before Christmas, the coaches kicked them off the team. And one of them, they didn't realize it, was Larry Johnson. Magic's older brother. And wow, that kicked off like this two-year drama where Larry told them the other four uh, boys accepted it. Larry, no way. He was telling them, and he told, this was not like one angry day. It's like the coach, one of the coaches said, we knew it was two years before Magic got there because I spent two years of running into Larry in the hallway everywhere I went, and he had choice words for me everywhere I went about how I had ruined his life. And, of course, there would have been a lot of other choices for young Irvin Johnson, but uh, it's the whole story of how he dealt with it. And it's in the midst of this community. Uh, Lansing. And so I was eager to go back and bring this period alive. How, how Irvin Johnson, this, this teenager, I would say he was empowered, but he empowered himself in yeah. so many ways. And, and certainly, um, L- Lieutenant Colonel or Dr. Matt Prophet empowered himself. Charles Tucker empowered himself. But we found a community that was open to that. And so this whole story just sort of is set in motion with all of that chemistry at play and those issues. Yeah. And it's it's this sort of cult of personality that he has, right? Because if you're as a sophomore in high school, like he had no game plan when he said, okay, we're going to walk out at me here. What are you going to talk about? There was no prepared remarks on any note card or none of that, right? He was just, okay, I'm going to be who I am, infuse that into people, right? And we're going to see, I mean, and you write uh, so wonderfully, the principal, they didn't punish him for, like, there's nothing they could do, right? Like he was the one to get them out and, 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 and organized. He was the one to say, guys, we have to do better. So it sort of quelled a lot of the infighting that was happening in the school. 
what was the principal going to do? Well, I can't punish this kid now. Like this seemed this seemingly thing, this thing worked. And I thought that was the, a very fascinating uh, point in his life. Um, and his brother, Larry had been in that two years earlier, mm-hmm. had been among the first 100 black kids at that school. And what was unspoken, we don't find out except for what Larry tells him later. And it's really in a quote from Irving. But Larry said, I told you, it's going to be white teammates and the things they're doing. And, um, you know, there was, as Dr. Tucker, and he was a really good psychologist, he said, and he played a role in this that the Johnson family didn't know. He approved of those boys getting kicked off the team. Mm -hmm. And that was really a basketball issue. But um, he, years later, in in talking about this, he had very mixed feelings because, you know, we're talking about people of faith here. They're willing to forgive. They never forgot. And um, you could not go into that situation if you're one of the 100 and be cowed, uh, as Dr. Charles Tucker explained. That didn't mean, uh, I mean, it was, it, it was the age it was. Uh, but I, what I was trying to do is just sort of frame the whole issue in culture, because I think there are a million more issues like that to happen. Uh, one level of misunderstanding or another, one level of blindness or another happens every day, all over the place, in this world. And um, I just wanted on the record how everybody brought what they had to bring. And I thought that that was... um, I just admired the people. Now, Dr. Charles Tucker is sort of a controversial guy. He's had his history. I know about that personally. We all have our histories. I I just really thought, first, true hoop. That, that's, that's Dr. Charles Tucker. <laughs> that dude loves some hooping. And if you've been a pickup addict and you've played six, seven days a week, even with my game, I, I, I'm just telling you, you understand Dr. Charles Tucker immediately and his value. And it's really so much of all of this is about, we have shared values. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of shared values. It just depends on whether we want to pretend we don't or not. And, um, we got to we got to get on down that road and so i you know one of the real issues and i'll i'll shut up and but you know one of the real issues was should a white guy write this book mm. and uh i you know i sort of sought around trying to recruit cuz there's a lot of talented young black writers and i i couldn't find anybody ready to jump on this and as I got into it, and and my daughter was saying, I, I don't think you should be writing this. <coughs> Pardon me. I apologize. Had a cold. Good. Um, 
But I think white people have to find ways to articulate the truth. I think I think one of the resentments of white people for black history, we should all be celebrating black history. It is the story of American freedom. Now, I, you can fight all of Bunker Hill you want. It's, it obviously is a, a big event, black people there too. But this is the long protracted march to our understanding of freedom. And you know, for black people to have to constantly be articulating that story and holding it in esteem and waiting for white people to quit rolling their eyes about it, I I just think there's no color line when it comes to the truth about our racial history. I think we all have to sort of put a shoulder to the wheel. Oh, it's exactly the analogy I wanted to use. Um, so let's say you know you're writing a book about Magic Johnson, and you're he's putting a shoulder to the wheel of all of this history, right? And he has kind of uncommon success in just breaking down a lot of the old barriers, right? He is, becomes beloved globally while actually pushing on these issues, right? As you described. But part of me is like, well, how do you do that, right? Part of it is fucking smile, right? Like. Like he's just like he has all this obstinance and and like rejects so much and he's so bossy. He's very bossy man in your book, right? Like, mm-hmm. but the whole time, like, who doesn't like that guy? <laughs> right? He's a major control freak. He will <laughs> smile. And you know, Clyde Drexler. Come on, Clyde, get with me. You know, Clyde was so mad. <laughs> Speaking of of Portland, Clyde was so mad (laughs) because, you know, the other thing, you really aren't a lot in sports. Everybody's too cool for school. Mm -hmm. And Magic was the biggest rah-rah guy you could ever find. (laughs) But he made it all work. And, you know, it was not something. There was no one. It was... There was no one telling him what to do. Now, once his coaches saw what he was doing, they set aside all the old stuff and they tried to figure out ways they could help the team do it better. He didn't run into that everywhere, but it was organic to the max. That was the same thing when I wrote the Kobe book because there were so many misunderstandings about Kobe. Totally different situation, but I wanted to go find the organic Kobe because I'd spent a lot of time with Kobe. And, uh, you know, people made all these assumptions about him. It was all over the place. People in Philadelphia, people in Charlotte, People across the NBA, he was a spoiled kid that was forcing his way into everything. Hell, the Bryant family didn't even know he was going to the Lakers till the night of the draft. It was <laughs> that, and Sonny Vaccaro admitted to me that was his deal. And he said, That's the most clandestine thing I ever did, Sonny Vaccaro said. Setting it up. Something. Yeah, he's on yeah, lots is. of clandestine things. He has. I was talking to Sonny yesterday. We were yeah. laughing about that. But he wa- he wanted vengeance, typical Italian thing. He wanted vengeance against the NCAA and Nike, and he wanted to steal the next generation player. And it just fell into his lap. 
But anyway, the thing that amazed me about Kobe, he knew all this. He, you know, I, I spent hours interviewing him. He could have defended himself at any time in the process. He never once brought up any of this crap. Mm -hmm. He smirked about it. Mm -hmm. You know why? He didn't give a crap. He didn't care what anybody thought. The one value he had, and he told me, I'm going to get there. I don't know how. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to find a way. And he figured he was uh, outwork everybody in every phase, insanely outworked them. And so the organic story is um, critical. Critical. Yeah. So you, you have this period in history that helped shape uh, Irvin Johnson Jr. into who he is, right? Everything you mentioned about his brother and 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 what has been going on in the country at the time. You have his father, right? Irvin Johnson Sr. Um, and then you have this, this situation where he ends up, uh, Irvin Jr. goes to LA and he becomes a Los Angeles Laker and immediately sort of adopts, or and it's kind of a, a, a mutual thing, Dr. Jerry Buss as his second father, right? As someone that is very close and influential to, uh, to him. And I thought this was interesting. So I'm reading this line from your book. This is Jeannie Buss, of course, now a major majority of the Lakers and Dr. Buss's daughter. They were close from the very first minute until the end. There was just something. They were each other's soulmates in some ways. And that really struck me because Irvin Johnson Sr. and Dr. Jerry Buss could not be more different in their just personalities and who they are and how they operated. And But they're both a part of Magic Johnson's soul. And by that, I mean... When you are gregarious and outgoing and all the things that magic is, well, of course you would align with someone like Jerry Buss. Like that just that just makes total sense. But there's this other part, right, which is how he was raised, the whole upbringing that seems to conflict with with that with that part of it. What did you make of that when you were trying to tell this organic story, the sort of dueling fathers, if you will? It was a major clash of values, and you know, Irvin had begun experiencing that class of values early on when he met Terry Furlow and at Michigan State. I mean, that's just the way the world was, is now, will forever be. That is human nature. And especially then, we can look back on this now through the, um, through the filter of HIV and everything that happened, but I'm going to tell you, coming out of the 60s and 70s, all bets were off. You know, the, the phrase was red-blooded American. <laughs> Everybody was like, and, and it was a sexual revolution. I mean, women had a very set societal code for their behavior. And... Um, it took a lot of imagination for a guy to realize <laughs> at first that that wasn't the case. They were as ready to get it on as anybody. And so um, it's all about the discovery of the sexual revolution, too. And, of course, you know, I'm not sure there's a greater factor um, in American race than white fear. And I just want to get that out there on the table. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I, I just don't think 
we need to spend another 50 years hiding from that. Uh, and there's white fear, you know, you know, that's why when I got the chance to go back to the 1830s, you know, with the data mining, I, I was able to, to get back into Magic's family like I had in other families. And when I got back there, I found here's this plantation right across the border from Virginia. Here's eight, the 1830s. His great, great, great grandfathers are born right in this situation. Here's Nat Turner's Rebellion. Most of those slaveholders where Magic was from, they, they immigrated from Virginia. North Carolina already had laws against the importation of slaves in the 1790s. They didn't enforce those laws, and they welcomed all this migration down from Virginia, and Virginia had become a major exporting state. This is often the weeds, perhaps too much about that, but that is where... I mean, that was the glaring thing. Um, oh, did he freeze? <laughs> he did freeze. <laughs> You're rolling your pros. I know. I'm like, that was where? Oh, my God. What? <laughs> what we what, did what, freeze. What? I'm sorry. Okay, you're back. You're See, back. I, you're back. I can talk no, us into it's... a freeze. But I, I, white fear is an important <laughs> part of all this stuff. <laughs> I can talk us into a freeze. I love it. <laughs> Can I? Okay, I've always been a little fascinated by Doctor Bus. Um, I, you know, yeah, I'm sorry. We're on Jerry Bus. I apologize. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, you, this book has so much research in it, and I imagine there's just, I, I imagine you could have written eight thousand pages instead of how many is it? Eight hundred ish. It is eight hundred. Um, but there was this little moment. My ears. The audio book's yeah. great, by the way. What's that? Oh, the audio book. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, um, it is. Okay. Around about page 761, you say, court records would suggest that the legendary bus sex drive had waned dramatically in his 60s, yet he would keep a track of young women around him on the payroll and keep to keep up the appearance of his playboy image, according to those records. What? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> what were the what records? records are we talking about? Like, this is just like, I just was like, this was a little peek into this like crazy world that... Anyway, um, what, there was a lawsuit against him um, uh, in San Diego, and um, th- there was this. I, and by that time, Jerry Buss was an old man, so he was somebody you could attach to the lawsuit. But he had he was bringing he'd always been bringing young women, a lot of them very young, in and out of his life, and there was a young girl very young, underage, and it ended up in a lawsuit, and he he was a defendant, and there were depositions, and one of the uh, independent newspapers in Southern California had gotten a hold of the depositions, and so part of it was that, yeah, he, 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 this this young girl used to come stay at his house, but... Mm. It was not like he was sexually abusing her. And uh, by that age, what he was doing was for show. But, you know, Jerry, um, Jerry, the Sports Illustrated was tipped off that, you know, Jerry might have gotten his money from the mob. We'll never know that. I don't think he did. He didn't have any of the mob mentality. He was scared to death. Uh, you know, a lot of this 
was in place. And then Jerry Tarkanian's agent, mm-hmm. Vic Weiss, gets murdered right in May. Uh, excuse me, uh, right in June of 1979. And all of Los Angeles freaks out over this. That's never been solved. At that time, Jerry Buss was about to close a deal to buy the Indiana Pacers. This has never been talked about, but he had to back out at the last minute. His partner with the Lakers took part of it. Uh, Sam Nassi, this this guy who was an interesting businessman, so interesting that when he took control of the Indiana Pacers and it, it, it was clear that he was in Jerry Buss's orbit as a, a, a business associate and partner, they did this between-the-lines story looking at Sam Nassi with all this cash buying up bankrupt department stores. And uh, events led Jerry Buss to be $3 million short uh, before he could close that $67 million deal for the Lakers, the Kings, and the Forum, and a ranch in California. And that was the largest sports deal in history at the time. It was a big deal. Three million was a lot of money. Winning time had mm-hmm. Jerry Buss's mother coming up with the cash. Um, and she made a, you know, Sally played a great, great role there. But Jerry Buss's mother died four years before he bought the team. Mm, and, that and- seemed like a key <laughs> and, and so the there's been some idea that some of his friends helped out, but there was a big investigation, and they basically, as Ron Carter explained to me, he worked for Jerry Buss. Suddenly, they were operating the Indiana Pacers and the Lakers. And the Kings, for that matter, out of the Kings didn't matter. It was another thing. But out of the Bus Mariani offices in L.A. And, of course, back in those days, the NBA was so weak, they had gotten Sports Illustrated to first try to investigate that deal. Sports Illustrated hired accountants. They couldn't figure out the deal between Bus and former Lakers owner Jack Kent Cook. Well, by 1982, with with Bus operating two teams out of one office, you know, and when when they uh, when uh, Ron Carter played for the Lakers, and then he he ended up on roster of the Pacers, it was that kind of <laughs> interchange, you know. But the NBA uh, obviously got wind of it, realized what was going on. So suddenly, here comes the Boston Globe doing. Uh, uh, a story, a series on the NBA and looking at the competitive issues and failure of of Jerry Buss and his associates with these two franchises. And so immediately the NBA calls for an investigation of Jerry Buss. Uh, this is uh, two years later. And it would seem, you know, Jerry Buss is this outlaw. But Jerry Buss is the Jerry Buss that we all, particularly Lakers fans, came to know and love. He uh, was a guy who went 
David Stern embraced him thoroughly because he was such a forward-thinking man. He did so many things. You know, Dr. Charles Tucker had had to negotiate that racial climate in the schools in Lansing, which he ended up doing his whole life. And so he, you know, he was a really cool dude. He would just sit back and read which psychologists are known to do. They just read people's actions. You can look at what they say, but you really got to look at how they are. And <clears throat> Charles Tucker did a read on Jerry Buss, and he realized this dude's not thinking racially. He's just out thinking there sexually to is what he's <laughs> <laughs> probably number one yes <laughs> and number one uh he, but well i would say that he's out there to embrace the best the best sex the best team the you know the best you know whatever he you know he he was that guy the best real estate he was that guy and you um you know, you could see the reporters. It wasn't just Jerry Buss. As you know, being in Irvin's presence, everybody is like, whoa, this dude. <laughs> this dude. And I mean, it's, you know, that racial divide went, even, even in the 80s, uh, the vast majority of the reporters were white. And I said in the book, every time they ask a question, you're, you're basically crossing the racial no man's land to try to to relate, mm -hmm. and it. Um, this was in. I mean, this this persisted into the. It, it, they were not going to empower people. I mean, it was just. It was just absent logic. It was still that white fear, and Jerry Buss was not a guy with. He he just didn't have that. And so um, Charles Tucker saw that, uh, and Jerry Buss loved Charles Tucker. You know, Charles fell out of favor eventually. He really was the guy who screwed up big with the, quote, freeze out of uh, Michael Jordan at the All-Star Game in Indianapolis as a rookie. And he was boasting about it to the reporters, and that really, I mean, this whole story is going today, full speed. My, uh, Michael, uh, like, announces, has it announced that he's now worth $3 billion because he knows that Magic is about to announce that he's worth $1 billion. And it drives Magic crazy that because they're still, I mean, Magic has worked his can off. He has, I mean, he has laid it on the line as an investor. This is not, he's not sitting back. Not that Michael is. Michael's done a lot too. But I mean, in, in terms of the grit and hustle of going all over the country, constantly selling his businesses, engaging the tens of thousands of people, you got to give the guy credit. And nobody knows about this story. They don't understand. And, and Michael has done a lot of things, but Michael got that percentage. Yeah, yeah. That was huge. I um, There's just like, we cannot discuss Magic Johnson for an hour without this 
episode that I just love so much. Um, 1980 finals, Kareem's not going to be able to play. Magic sits in Kareem's first class seat on the United <laughs> flight. Um, and then, uh, as you write, broadcaster Jim Hill says he looked back at everybody and said, have no fear, EJ is here, we're going to win this game. But then you write, actually, several <laughs> accounts offered that he declared, Irvin Magic motherfucking Johnson is here. <laughs> just... And then he goes to the coach and is like on the same flight and is like, hey, I think I can start at center. And then he says, I did it a couple of years ago in high school. <laughs> it got reassuring. Um, and I'll let you talk here in a second. But um, interestingly, um, so they have Daryl Dawkins and Caldwell Jones on 76ers. And he says he can guard Caldwell Jones. And they're like, whoa, that's crazy. He's seven feet tall. Couldn't really do that. And he's like, well, what are they going to do about us, right? What are they going to do about guarding us? Which basically predicts the next, like, 40 years of NBA basketball, right? Is uh, is we're going to have talented, skilled players who can move, who are going to obviate these old stiffs, right? Um, anyway, I just thought that was, like, it's a, it's a real moment of just, like, old school, like, I got get on my back. I got this. Just bold thinking from a very young player. The the real linchpin of my career as a basketball writer um, has its basis in my relationship with Tex Winter. Mm-hmm. And Tex gave me. I could call him anytime. We could talk about anything. I was coaching AAU teams and boys uh, city league teams running the triangle just so that I could understand it. And Tex just loved that, and he would help me. And we, you know, uh, I started with Kobe, and it was Kobe and Shaq right away. And I engaged Tex on that, and I I was rebounding free throws for Kobe in the forum, and it was after practice. There was nobody there except Jerry West and a gorgeous TV reporter. And Kobe tells me out of the blue, this is in spring of 99, that he's always dreamed that Tex Winter would be his coach. And I said, Tex, Kobe uh, has, had had this dream. And I so, told Kobe, I can get him to call you. And that's, I'm an idiot. I, I, you know, I wasn't even thinking of it. And so Tex calls Kobe and they begin their relationship in a phone call. And Jerry Krause immediately goes, what? what's Tex doing calling Kobe? And the, the Lakers going, what, what? Because Texas working for the Bulls, you don't have an assistant mm-hmm. coach calling up. Right. And, and so I totally missed that. But Tex, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> yeah, but Tex immediately jumped into the whole thing about, mm-hmm. and he told Kobe, he said, you know, this is not your fault. Uh, he, and he, that's where he became Yoda for Kobe. But Tex said, you know, I've thought about this often. What if Michael had had to play with a center like Shaq? Mm-hmm. And Michael was, you could make an argument, he was the greatest post weapon in NBA history. I think he would he would certainly be in that conversation. Totally different post weapon. Uh, but um, Magic, <clears throat> you, you could flip back to 1980. Magic had that ability to be that player that fully after now the in, knee injury later would limit him some, but he, he spent his whole to see uh, careers, the early seasons of his career deferring to Kareem. 
And, and the Lakers had this chemistry. You know, they made up the, the players made up the matchbooks. They all smoked back then. It said trade Kareem. Because <laughs> the guys that wanted to get out and run, they wanted to get out and run. You know, there's and, a lot and, in that sentence, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, wow. there is. But, but, you know, and it's like everybody that we ever talked to in the NBA at any time said, hey, we weren't game planning for magic. Come on. Kareem was that weapon, and Paul Westhead got fired because they won that 1980 championship. Magic played incredibly in game six because nobody knew what he could do. (laughs) But Kareem put him there. And nobody at any time, whether it's Phil Jackson, and Phil Jackson just sort of ignored Kobe. He built, you know, Phil Jackson was the guy who established the hierarchy of a team. And he said, it's Shaq. Just like in Chicago, he had said, and nobody argued in Chicago or even thought to argue. And that says a lot about Kobe. He thought to argue. (laughs) But, But he wanted, Kobe had that ambition, and he wanted to be the top of that hierarchy. Magic, just another thing that goes to, it's just ocean-sized his emotional intelligence at every phase of his life. And he wanted to run. And he loved that whole thing. And they did run. When you look at the numbers, they didn't run all the time, obviously. They um, They were a very efficient running team, pretty good. But that team was dictated by Kareem and Irvin, you know, from from day one. Knew and there's this idea do. that, like, the good teams have some kind of harmony, but it seems like, to me, not. It seems like they kind of have this, like, ever-shifting truce that you just kind of, like, can you accommodate a big personality like Kareem and a big personality like Magic and the various coaches who came through and, like, they always are duking it out every day, right? That's just that's how it works. Now, you talk about saying a lot in a sentence. <laughs> that sums up a lot right there. Yeah, yeah, that is. No, it, it, it is that belief, right? Because you have this idea, but win a championship, everybody's got to be harmonious and whatever. And it's like, that's not really how it works, right? Like, because these are all these alpha dudes. Because to make it to this league, you've got to have this outsized belief in what you can do. And so does everybody else who plays next to you. How's that going to work? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, the, um, the bad boys were in an intimidating environment. Oh, yeah. now, I, I spent my first five years of NBA writing uh, with the Celtics doing their projects five years. I did the bad boys. I did some Lakers. And I, I asked Chuck Daly a couple of questions one day, and he said, he was trying to explain, you know, I, I, need, I was a guy that needed a lot of explanation. <laughs> and, and he said, you know, basically you're dealing with, 12, 13 corporations when you're doing an NBA team. And, um, you know, corporations are not moral, ethical. So they, the teamwork is is really not wired into corporations. It is not corporate nature to, uh, because corporations are built for profit. You know, they're, they're built for profit. They're not built for comfort. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there is that, and I think that's what is treasured 
about sport and and team sport when uh, it, it goes against human nature, goes against corporate nature. It uh, and yet somehow you, you find uh, you see it a lot in football, but yeah. you find people that are willing to sacrifice. And Irvin was always that guy. He he kept tally in other ways. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it says a lot too. Oh God, it's, not- it's, it, it's funny you say that. So we're we're, you know, we're, we're 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 in the LA days, and this is you know God. This book goes through just these legendary stories, and you know one of the stories to me that uh, Lon Rosen um, when Magic lent them his car and. The car blows up somewhere in LA on the road <laughs> and Lon calls magic immediately. There's a his brand new Mercedes at the time, $40,000. So it's dude, I'm sorry. Like I, your car, like it exploded and magic goes, yeah, great. Um, you're right. Did you get the number out of the glove compartment box before you, <laughs> before you get out of the car? And Lon's like, no, no, dude, you don't understand. Your car is like done. It, it, there's like remnants. It's like, okay, I'll send somebody down to take care of that. However, about that number in the glove compartment box, did you get it? <laughs> right. And that just speaks to that other part of magic, right? And Henry, you, you said this so eloquently in our in our show notes. Has anybody ever been more famous for cheating on their wife? And I mean, though that was how he contracted HIV, right? It's all known by, by now, and I'm sure there's even more that's unknown. Magic but, wrote a book about it. Co- correct. <laughs> well, the, the, yeah. the, the legendary <laughs> sex parties and just all of the, right? And it's, but he's, it, he's like his Teflon this that like, it didn't, she didn't leave him one. And two, no one, no one gave him shit for it. They were like, all right, it's magic. Okay, we forgive him. Roland, I like, like already everyone feels bad for Cookie, uh, you know, throughout the book. And then yeah. he throws, Magic's throwing Cookie a 60th birthday party <laughs> in Monte Carlo. And at that party, Greg Eaton tells you, quote, he had those girls all sprayed gold naked serving drinks at his wife's, wife's birthday party. party. <laughs> like, oh, my God. I mean, when you're magic, you're magic, right? <laughs> That's how that goes. I, You know, I uh, have a favorite moment in the book where magic has just fired Paul Westhead and he's getting booed everywhere. And the Midwestern sensibilities of Lansing, the coaches and uh, uh, all these different people that were a factor in his life come down to Chicago to a game and Magic's got them set up with rooms in the team hotel. He has them primo seats at the game and he has them go out to dinner after the game and he has every seat arranged. You can't walk up to the table and just sit somewhere. <laughs> Magic has determined, and this points out his level of control mania. He has where everybody's going to sit at that table. And so they have this meal, but he's booed the whole game. And this is like six weeks after he has fired Paul Westhead. And they all go back to the hotel afterwards. And they get there, and the place is wall-to-wall with women. And all these guys, his high school coaches, and (laughs) their eyes are like, Irvin, who are all these women? And when they go to the room, there are women in the hallways, thick. And and they say, are these all whores? (laughs) And, And Irvin goes... A few of them are. Some of them are, yeah. But 
And so they suddenly realized that this was uh, just a, a hidden cultural phenomenon. Uh, I, I mean, where do the penguins go? They march. They, they go where the fish is. And that is human nature. And so Urban got in a lot of trouble for saying he accommodated all the women when he was HIV. And that upset everybody. Um, as George Andrews, his lawyer, explained to me, and there, you know, there are sections in there. He goes to check in a hotel room, and uh, and, and George is just there to conduct some business with him. They check in, and there's a naked lady sitting in the bed who's uh, bribed a bellhop to get in. And the whenever they're conducting business, constantly women knocking at the door, wanting him. And you know, he was uh, he was unpopular for the first time in his life in the wake of Westhead. Now, I'm not, I mean, you can explain anything. There's so many, uh, uh, you know, the tales of, and of course, sex addiction, we, we don't even know if that's a term, but there are tales of, of athletes and rock stars and all kinds of people. It's, it's and, and I mean, it, it covers every group. It's billionaires, not, everybody. Yeah, oh, everybody who's, you know, they got islands, uh, you know, to fly all their friends to for, but Irvin was greeted by a flood tide and uh, he was 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. It was not, um, I mean, we were starting to see uh, leaking into news accounts mm -hmm. Uh, things about HIV, but you know he, it, it, his coaches understood because once he was announced as HIV, all they did was think back to that game in Chicago, and what they saw in the hotel. And um, I, I just think, you know, it's um. It's just how it happened. It's the it's as factual as everything about what happened at Everett High School. It's mm -hmm. as factual as everything down that road he traveled. Just as it is all the corporate work he uh, that he's put in to to make himself a wealthy wealthy man who pretty much aims everything he's doing at bettering the lives of Black Americans. He, you know, insurance companies, finance companies, uh, his employment. He's really proud that he employs tens of thousands of people. There are things, I mean, Irvin's not, he's not walking on any water anytime soon. I'm not trying to say that. I, I pretty much try to uh, play straight on everything, you know. It's really disrespectful as mother to be doing all this. And she's having these religious yeah. sessions. She is deeply religious. It's really disrespectful of this woman that gave him, continues to give him the most precious love that a 
one human being can give another. I, you know, I don't let him off the hook. He knew stuff, it seems to me. And um, I, I really didn't, I wasn't trying to do this or that. I really didn't have to tell a lot of sex things. <laughs> right. He told them all. <laughs> I mean, he was, he, I, he stood up and he owned it. And so um, I, I just, I think with a story like Irvin's, you just got to have lots of context so that we all have um, uh, a human reference for the way we ourselves are, the way our times have been, the the evolutionary path we're on trying to... Uh, Make all of this uh, better, and Irvin's played his role. Uh, you know, I mean, what a what a major dude, what a major player. Because we're here talking about him because he is true. Hmm. Um, there's a question I have about magic, which isn't fair for me to ask you, but I'm asking you because you are the world's foremost magic expert at this point. Um, Maybe so. Uh, I, his business life after retirement is very wrapped up with Michael Milken. Like Milken, all of these dudes, these Mark Walter, Peter Guber, Howard Schultz, like they're all from this Drexel sphere. And Magic's been, he's been publicly close to Milken. They're in a bunch of events and business deals and stuff together. Um, what's going on there? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, Tell me about, and then because I'm asking specifically because this circle of people like are going to own the Lakers after the bus family passes it on, right? They, this is Guggenheim partners and I forget the name of everybody involved, but like they have bought the, the controlling interest, the right of first refusal to buy the team. Um, and, and I would believe that, you know, um, Peter Gruber explained to me that they've spent a lot of effort recruiting magic to be the guy running the Warriors instead of Jerry West. Right. right. And uh, Magic would not do it. Now, he didn't say why, but he uh, left Goober to believe it was all about the Lakers. Mm -hmm. He did not want to mm -hmm. own another team that was not the Lakers. And that he could have run the Warriors. They wanted him instead of Jerry West to run the Warriors, and he turned it down. And I, you, you know, billionaires and those who want to be billionaires, they all dance together. It's not a, uh, I, I think there are probably three factors where I, I didn't get as deeply into this as I wanted to. Number one was that after five years, and I, I really was moving through his business life, I was at a level of exhaustion that um, if I had made the book about his business life and really worked on it, I maybe had a chance. I, I just really... Uh, and. Even what I did, they said, maybe you need to cut this a good bit of the business part out. And I said, no, I've kind of at least tried to indicate the scope of it. I was fortunate to be able to 
interview Peter Goober. I'm not, uh, I, I'm a researcher and an investigative reporter. I'm not a financial, I'm not an accountant. I, uh, oh, it's, it's intentionally complicated, right? Like, yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to, and so I, I didn't want to get in a position of pretending that I understood it all first in answering your question. Second of all, there's a whole lot of billionaires and there's a whole, that's a big group of guys. I, at the very least, I should have pointed it out. Uh, much, much clearer. I pointed out his association with Goober. They really sort of built theirs up through minor sports. And and Goober, uh, to me, the most important thing in the story was that here were two black guys seeking a meeting because basically I like to write black power stories. And these are two black guys. They have the idea. Their numbers are immaculate. Goober has no idea. He's head of Sony USA. It's the early 90s. And they blow him away with this presentation about that's the like theater. the business peak of this story, right? Is like they're it is. They're just like, here, you're going to Sarajevo or whatever to open movie <laughs> theaters, but we have the audience you want. And, like, and it's how right many miles here. from where they were? Like whatever, 12 miles away. Right. Baldwin Hills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and and, you know, I, I don't know if you guys got advanced copy of the hardcover copy, but uh, Damien Scott Key, this, uh, yeah, hardcover. Yeah. Damien Scott Key, I, I, one of the late interviews I did, he's on the Smithsonian Channel talking about Afrofuturism. And the big moment for him is seeing Black Panther in the Magic mm-hmm. Johnson Cinema in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And, and I... You know, there are limitations uh, in every project you do. I just did not have it in the tank. I did not. I, I mean, I, I already. It It is insane to publish an 800 page book. <laughs> and my head is off to you guys <laughs> because you guys are. You're informed about this, unlike any of the other people who've interviewed me. And I want to tell you that um, I, 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 he, he is that, and somebody will ultimately write that story. Well, there's something going on there, right? I mean, I don't, I don't pretend to understand it either. Well, there's no question. Yeah, but, but I, I, to me. He has turned these operations, you know, his mother was a cafeteria worker and supervisor, Mm -hmm. and he has a food service company that has everything from the Supreme Court, all these colleges. He, You know, it's a contracting company. He's got all these different companies, and they are aimed at many of them aimed at the lives of black Americans. They're aimed at the lives of American sports fans. They are um, a function of Magic Johnson. And so I, um, I have no doubt. I don't think you get to be a billionaire without bending the shit out of a lot of rules, probably. <laughs> but, but you That's know, our rules... Yeah. <laughs> are, are, right, right. It, 
But our our rules favor billionaires. They our rules favor corporations. Um, I you know I I've owned a corporation for forty years. Mine is like a, having a little mom and pop grocery store. It's <laughs> it's not a great big corporation, but I you know I participate in the American corporate dream. I you know I I appreciate uh, certain elements of capitalism. Well. I, you know, and I I just think Irvin's that guy, but I um I. I don't know how much I defended him. I just tried to tell what I knew and what I had learned. I, I, I'm not, I certainly wasn't trying to defend his behavior. And, but by the way, he was single. I mean, he and Cookie were not married. Yeah, but, I mean, he had when, a whole other kid that she didn't know about. Until. Right. No, I mean, the, and, you know, for a guy who is big and public and smiling, he is intensely secretive. And there are, with every book I do, there are all kinds of secrets I encounter that I go, whether it's Jerry West or, you know, Magic Johnson, Kobe Bryant, I go, am I going to do this? (laughs) Am am I going to be that guy who turns, and you can sell a lot more books that way. And there, that has to happen. And I, I, you know, their families already get mad enough at me because um, Jerry West's wife got very mad, his second wife. Um, to, to Michael Jordan's credit, he shook my hand. They, when I was in Charlotte, the you know I've been a nobody in NBA media circles forever, and. I'd go We've been to on the media bus together, Roland and I. We sat on the little like <laughs> yeah. little jitney yeah, going to finals like, practice. Mike Mass is like those two troublemakers. Yeah. Roland's telling me about his Marriott timeshares. You know, like <laughs> we're we're all we're all trying to tell the off-camera stories and, and having fun doing it because yeah. you got to really inform the fans yeah. of what's up, and um, so. But even after the Jordan book came out, I suddenly had primo seats <laughs> in Charlotte for for those for those games mm. whenever I'd go down there. And so, uh, and Michael shook my hand. I mean, he, he's not happy. I I know he's not. Nobody. My wife said, "Why don't you write about?" dead people <laughs> because it's like doing an autopsy before they die. It is. Yeah. But also I, I was thinking about, you know, they deal with so many enemies and competitors and people saying bad things about them. NBA athletes do, right? Like, yeah, you know, like, like this book coming out about magic or Michael is like, probably doesn't rank super high on magic and Michael's Richter scale, right? They've dealt they with a lot really, of really, they're yeah. going to be bothered with, yeah, with, yeah. Exactly. they're just not, it's not now my Michael books in 21 languages. It just went into Portuguese. Nice. Magic is already in eight. That's awesome. uh, and I, I want to say this because I think this is really significant. Uh, my son-in-law's Japanese studies. They were over in Japan for a year. He's doing research over there. He's a PhD at Harvard wrapping up. And so we go over to see them in February for 16 days. And he's up one morning down on the coast at the, at the grave of this ninth century samurai warrior. And he, he sends back this photo 
and it's in the mist and it's it's one of the neatest photos I'd ever seen. I'm going and I'm in wrapping up my magic book and I write the ending while I'm in Japan and I'm thinking, holy fuck. Think about this. We have a global culture that absolutely idolizes warriors. And who are the symbols of the modern day warrior globally? And you have black males in America. You have a culture that has spent hundreds of years doing everything it can to prevent that from happening. And they have statues of Kobe in China. Uh, You know, I was working for a Japanese magazine before I was working for an American magazine uh, while I was doing all my bulls work in the 90s. And my point is that these warriors, they are are emblems of what it means to be a warrior. And they are... They are not only cultural and business and athletic titans, but they are heroes to the world. I just find that absolutely and totally poetic and powerful and truthful. And I, you know, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Roland, this was an excellent conversation. Everybody, Magic, the life of Urban Magic Johnson. Listen. Our heroes are wonderful, but they are also people and imperfect and have all sorts of warts and blemishes. And, you know, people got to tell their, their whole stories. And this is a wonderful story of, uh, of Magic Johnson. I encourage you all to pick it up. Roland Lazenby, thank you so much for joining us on True Hoop. Everyone, take Cheers. care. Thank you. <laughs>